Awesome. Uh, welcome. If you're a guest with us, my name is Al. I'm one of the pastors here. I might be about to open a can of worms, but uh, this is where we're at today. We're looking at the Lord's Supper or communion, depending on your faith tradition, uh, where you've come up. Uh, uh, you might have a bunch of questions regarding about stuff we're going to talk about today. Uh, but here's what we do. We go through books of the Bible verse by verse as it is in context. We make application to our daily lives. We, we want to be biblical, not just traditional in any way. We want to follow the scriptures in every way. And, uh, and so that's what we're going to do. So when we're looking at this, this, this idea or, or this great feast, the Lord's Supper, communion, uh, we need to uh, do so according to the scriptures. Uh, we need to do so in the freedom of the scriptures, and we need to do so uh, as prescribed in the scriptures. And so when it comes to this particular thing, many people, uh, depending on your faith tradition or the rhetoric used in your faith tradition you grew up in, if you're not a Christian or you, you, you came to, to Christ late in life, like whatever last church you're at, you probably have your whole uh, view of communion based upon, or the Lord's Supper. I'm going to use those terms interchangeably today. Uh, you may have your whole view of the, uh, what that feast, that meal is, just simply based off of what was said every week uh, when you partook of it, whether you took of it every, each week like we do, or maybe once a month or once a quarter, depending on your background. And so um, before we get into the text, if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hands. One of our ushers will bring you one. If you don't own one, this this is our gift to you. I said I might open a can of worms, but just because there may be a lot of questions in light of this sermon, I don't have uh, three hours, uh, but if I did, I would, uh, you know, spend it on this. Uh, we're not going to go that long. Um, in honor of the, uh, the great, late uh, Tim Keller, uh, he said once in a, a breakout session to use, to only preach one-third of your content. And so that's what I'm going to do today. If you've got more questions, let's talk after. Let's get coffee. Um, but to set up the sermon, I want us to, uh, first to see today that those in this church of Corinth. They're getting drunk at communion. And that's not a tradition we have maintained. We're going to be, they get rebuked for that. But just imagine like how wild this is. Like they're getting drunk at communion. Like that's, that's where they're at. They, they miss the, they, they misunderstand the Lord's Supper in such a way that man, they're just, they're just pounding it. The, the wine is just, and this is how you know that it was actual real wine. Because you didn't get, they didn't get drunk off of grape juice. Just that's another whole sermon, another theological point, and all the Baptists are offended. And so this just the reality. That's where it's at. Uh, that's they're they're going to get rebuked for that. But I want us to see a greater context, an understanding of what this is, what this great feast is. And so, in order to, for us to understand it, let me say this. Um, the past few weeks, we've been looking at this idea of, of we've been set free in Christ to worship Him in everything we say and do. Our whole life, the whole Christian life is to be worship. So we're, we're not, we don't go to work, to, we, we go to worship. We worship Jesus with our work, with our, our family, with our relationships, with our time, our talent. Everything we do is either done unto the worship of King Jesus or done to the worship of self or some other God. And so we've spent the past few weeks rejecting any other God other than Jesus in that we are to worship him with our entire full life. The Apostle Paul is now going to start getting into uh, discussing what it looks like to corporately worship. And so for the for uh, most of the remainder of uh, this book uh, of 1 Corinthians is going to be a lot about corporate worship, uh, practices in corporate worship, how to worship Jesus orderly. But he's going to start today with the Lord's Supper or, or communion. And so that, this great feast does not, I need us to understand, this doesn't begin in the pagan world, like many people will say. 
uh, th- this feast, there was in, in, in Corinth uh, uh, some type of uh, pagan worship in which they believed there was a god of, of wine and uh, they would get drunk unto him. Um, and so th- th- perhaps some of the Corinthians, that's why they're getting drunk. I don't know. But uh, this is not a pagan practice that, that Christians redeemed. I just want you to see this. Christians can redeem certain things, uh, but like the cross is, 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 is redeemed. Like we now have a symbol of the Christian faith, which is uh, a Roman, which was a Roman cross, uh, a, a instrument of torture, right? It was a pagan symbol, but we, it's been redeemed because of the resurrection of Christ. I want you to see the Lord's Supper is not a redemption of a pagan feast. It is an insta- It is a, uh, uh, a, a, a a perfection or a point, a, a reflection of that began when uh, uh, the Jewish Passover. So that's what we have been talking about. A lot of they've, God's people have been set free to live free. If you remember back in Exodus, before uh, God's people were set free out of Egyptian slavery. Again, we've been talking about this at length for the past few weeks about uh, God's people being set free. Uh, but what happened right before they were set free in Israel? They had a feast. What was it? It was the Passover. It was in, and so and just before Jesus is crucified, guess what meal they're having? The Passover. So just before Jesus is, or just before God's people are set free from Egyptian slavery to salvation, uh, just is this is very similar to when just before Jesus is going to be hung and crucified on a cross, he's feasting with his disciples. And they're they're celebrating Passover. And in the middle of Passover, he changes the script. He, he prays over the bread, and he, he prays over the cup, and he institutes what we now know as the Lord's Supper. He changes everything. And so this, we're going to get into a little bit more of, of that, but that's where it begins. It began with the, the, the exodus, the salvation of God's people. Uh, communion, or the Lord's Supper, begins uh, predating the, the crucifixion of Jesus just before the salvation of all people. I want us to see this. That this, this is a continuation of these great feasts that God has. And so the question we have to ask, the first question is, is this feast, is the Lord's Supper merely symbolic? Is it merely symbolic? Some of you, your faith tradition, uh, you grew up and this is, it is merely a symbol. Um, and some of you, that's not, that's not your faith tradition. What do the scriptures say? Let's look at it. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 15 through 20, it says this. As I speak, uh, I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourself what I say. Hey, I think y'all, y- y- y'all are sensible people. I think y'all can, y'all can follow along is what he's saying. Judge for yourself what I say. Same is f- true for us. I want you to leave your faith tradition, your background uh, at, at, you know, at the door right now. And then I want us to look at the scriptures and judge for yourself what they say. He says this, verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless, and he's referring to the, 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 the wine and communion, is, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we are, and we are one body, for we all partake in one bread. Consider the people of Israel who are not those who eat the sacrifice, or sorry, consider those people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, particip- participants in the altar. What do I, um, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what the pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons, not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Let's unpack it. What's going on here? First, I need us to see that we live in not just a physical world. We live in a physical world and a spiritual world. There's a seen realm, which you see right now, and there's an unseen realm. 
that where the Lord, our, our God is, and where Satan and demons are. Like, they, they are real, and they are present in an unseen realm that interacts with the seen realm. And that may be a little spooky for some of you. That's just the reality, and the, the scriptures are clear to this. Some people overemphasize it. Some people underemphasize it. If it was spooky to you, you probably underemphasize it. If you're like, yeah, it's so awesome, like you overemphasize it. Like That's just the reality. It, it is. And so here's the point I want us to see. When it comes to communion, when we're, when, when we're talking about something physical, when we're talking about something uh, interacting in the physical realm, Paul is making the point, among many points, is that this is not merely symbolic. Um, there is an element of symbolism, though. There's a lot of symbolism in the bread and in the cup. There is. So, so those who would say that it's not, sim- it's not symbolic, it's only uh, uh, you know, something supernatural uh, or, or crazy, um, would be wrong as well. It is, it is very symbolic, but it's not merely symbolic. What I mean by that is that the bread uh, that we partake in the Lord's Supper um, is, a, is bread, and it points to something. What does it point to? Jesus' body being broken in our place for our sins. The cup, the juice, or, uh, or the, uh, the, the wine, it is symbolic of his blood. Yes, indeed, it is both. Uh, it, it, it has an element of, both of them have elements of symbolism. Additionally, Paul says here, they have one loaf. And we do our best to continue that. We have one loaf. When, we break, when, when it's, it's broken and spread out, we're, we're trying to do our best to have one loaf, one body. We're one family. So when we move to two services in a few weeks, uh, we're still one body, one family, uh, one loaf. That, there is symbolism in that as well. Um, additionally, as it's broken into many pieces, it's, not, it's also symbolic that there are many members. He makes it clear here in the text that that is true. And so yes, there's, there is symbolism, great symbolism in the Lord's Supper. Uh, just like there was great symbolism in the Passover. Um, and so there is symbolism here. The cup, however, when Jesus is in Passover and, he, and he's talking about bread and he breaks it, and he, before he does, he prays. Before he does, he prays. I want you to see in this moment what Jesus is doing is separating the Lord's Supper from the Passover. He's setting it apart as something different. So when he says every time you eat of the bread and you drink of the cup, uh, as, as we, we say every single Sunday, and we'll get to later on in this, this chapter in 1 Corinthians, is that he's not saying every time you eat bread. Every single time you eat bread or every time you drink wine, like you're, you're, you're doing the Lord's Supper. That's not what he's saying. He is separating it from every time you, parti- you participate in this feast, what is now called the Lord's Supper or communion, which was, uh, uh, which was separated from Passover in this moment when Jesus prays, he sanctifies or sets it apart through prayer. So mid-Passover, mid Jesus is like, Let's, we're doing something new now. And he takes the bread and he prays, showing his disciples that this is the beginning of something new. And so this, this, is, this feast has been instituted by Jesus himself before he is, on the night that he was betrayed, he goes to the cross to die in our place for our sins and so what he says in verse 16 is that this cup in this body or or this cup that we bless and this 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 bread that we partake in he says it is a particip is it not a participation with the body and blood of christ the word is uh koinia the, the the greek word this is this means fellowship is it not a fellowship with christ's body and christ's blood is the question he's asking so we've got to ask ourselves, when it's like, is the Lord's Supper merely symbolic? Paul's asking, is it merely symbolic? Or it seems that 
There's a, uh, he says, is it, is it not true that there's a participation with the body and blood of Christ? He, now, I know some of you are squirming right now, so hold tight. Uh, there's a unity here. There is a, a participation, a bond, a fellowship here that's going on that he's speaking to, just like there's a unity in Christ. Do you believe you're, you're unified in Christ, or do you believe you're just merely symbolically united to Christ? Do you believe that we are merely united to Christ? We're one family? Like the, the, the church of Jesus is merely symbolically a family or actually one family? It's funny because like we'll ascend to it intellectually and go, we'll go, I believe we are actually one family. But we'll live as if we are not one family. That's why it's called communion. There's supposed to be a unity here. And so what, what we're talking about here is not just simply what's, what's happening in the elements or wh- is something happening, is something not, what is this feast? It's pointing to other realities in our life of, of actually how you really view your theology and your practical living. How, how does that play out? So many people say, no, I, I really believe in my mind I'm united to Christ, but yet will live in such a way that they have to pay for their own sins. They have to atone for their own sins. Like I've, I, I, I harmed my friend or I said something wrong and I gotta, I gotta you know, make it up to them so they, they know that I, 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 I'm sorry. If Christ has died once for all, there's no more atonement needed. You are really forgiven. This is what I'm saying. There's a real unity in a bond, in a participation with Christ in, the, in a very same, similar way as there's a unity in a bond uh, in a real way that we have with Christ as our atoning sacrifice personally, corporately, therefore uniting us all together in one body, one faith, one baptism. This is it. So Christians are not to merely think about uh, their relationship with Jesus symbolically, but actually. And Christians are not to just merely think about our fellow Christians across the world as symbolically a part of the family, but actually a part of the family. And this happens only by the seal in unity of who? God the Holy Spirit. It's God that actually unites his people together. We're unified by God the Holy Spirit. And so many Christians today... Uh, to me, the, this issue of, of, of the Lord's Supper is more indicative of how people view the world more than they view the elements. Many people don't, many Christians live as though we live in a merely symbolic world, a, a, a real just physical world. We don't, many people don't realize that we live in a spiritual world as well. That there really are demonic forces at work. We talked about that last week. Some of us like affirm like demonic forces and ideologies and in certain systems that are you know you know uh, targeting uh, uh, folks in our nation and our youth and all of these things. They were like, yeah, yes, yeah. so the demons are clearly working here. And this is what Paul is saying. Like he, he refers now to the participation of uh, demon worship in idolatry. This is what he's saying. So he's like, I, I'm, what is he implying here? He's like, I'm talking about the Lord's Supper, but I'm implying something. And he says, he then looks to pagan sacrifices, not to affirm the Lord's Supper. I need us to see this. He's not looking to the, the pagan world in verse 19 and verse 20 to affirm. See, look, the pagans do it. See, we Christians do it too. It's not what he's doing. He's saying, when you look at the pagan sacrifices and the idolatry in the temple, 
you, you all know that they're actually participating with demons. They're actually not just worshiping demons. And, and, we, and he says, are idols anything? No, like the idol is nothing. The image they worship is nothing. The external physical stuff is nothing. It's meaningless. It's just material. But they're actually participating with demons. It's actual real. And so, and I, I've spoke about it at length prior, but we know that idols aren't anything but demons are. We also know that there, there's no neutrality in this world. We also know that like things that we've talked about at length, like tarot cards and you know, Ouija boards and, and stuff like this are not just symbolic. They're actually demonic. They're actually participating in, in, in either witchcraft, Wicca, d- demon worship. I'm, it, some of you don't know. Again, I know some of you, yeah, I, this just, I thought people, do people still do that? Yes, yes. And I've heard story after story after story of people in, in dabbling in witchcraft, Wicca, all these other things come out with true, supernatural, demonic stronghold experiences to where they're not willing to give up the demons to worship Jesus. They're, they're dual-minded. They're, they're, they're divided. And they're not, and they can't worship Jesus fully and rightly because they have another Lord. And he's saying you can't participate he says, I don't want you to be participants with demons. He say, he's, saying, he's trying to get them to see that this is not a merely symbolic world, but a physical world and also a spiritual world. There is mystery. There is some, everything's not just black and white. And so there are certain types of yoga. There's certain types of, 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 of activities that you can partake in that are not neutral. While on the surface, the thing, the idol, the, the, the sh- like stretching is neutral. But who you're worshiping in it could, could really be demonic. There can be a participation with demons. And so, so many people are too afraid of hyper-spiritualizing this world that they don't spiritualize anything. And so the answer to the question here is this, this wrestling, not so much, it is, is the Lord's Supper merely symbolic? That is the question we must ask ourselves today. But also, how do you view the world? Do you view the world as just merely physical, merely symbolic, and there's no really supernatural? Because I say this because I'm, this is a setup for the, the rest of the messages in, in 1 Corinthians. Do you think this is wild? They're gonna, they're, they, we got tongues coming. We got some stuff coming. That, that, that you, and if you don't have a context to understand the world we live in, because you only view this as, as a physical world, not a spiritual world, or the only spirituality you have is, you know, oh, I have faith, and that's my spirituality, but that, that you don't see that we live in a, a, a world that is both physical and spiritual, it w- we won't be able to understand the rest of Paul's uh, conversation with the Corinthians. And so there's a real participation I want us to see. The answer is no. It's not merely symbolic. There's a real participation with Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit in the partaking of the Lord's Supper. Jesus is present in, in a way that I'm going to, I got a lot more sermon to go, so hold on. Uh, Jesus is present in, in the bread and wine so that when we partake in the Lord's Supper, we're not merely having a subjective reality. Though we are having one and we are remembering him. Uh, but we are doing something that is more than symbolic. We're feasting upon Christ, with Christ. And so how so is the question that every one of you post-enlightenment people are asking. 
Fun fact, the Bible doesn't give us the answer to that one. This is how biblical we are. We don't try to answer things that the Bible doesn't give us answers for. We just say it as it is. And I want us to see that. So some faith traditions have tried to do that. And so that's where you get into different teams. And we're talking about communion, and I don't want to, I'm not saying we don't have teams, and I don't have, fan, we don't have, you know, there's, there's not teams out there. But what I want us to see is that I want us to hold to a, a biblical Christian view of the Lord's Supper, not just the faith tradition view of the Lord's Supper. Now, every faith tradition will go, see, mine is the, the biblical view. And the point is, Paul is stating here that this is not something that is just merely symbolic, that there is a type of participation with the blood of Christ and the body of Christ, in verse 16, as we partake in the Lord's Supper. It's a type. He doesn't give us how. He doesn't, he, he doesn't really care to explain more than that. Now, some of you will say, isn't that a Catholic view? And so let me address that issue. And so the, the issue truly between the Protestant world and the, Catholic, the Roman Catholic world is, is not necessarily the issue of, of Christ's presence. It's, that's actually not the issue. The issue is transubstantiation. That's the issue. So transubstantiation is, the phys, is a philosophical term that, uh, that, that we can get into to, to detail on it, but this is, that just was stuck to an Aristotelian logic that, that was forced, that, that, that they, they were trying to use to explain how Jesus is present. The issue is trying to explain how Jesus was present. Well, in doing so, uh, the, the reformers and, and, through the, and all the Protestants rejected this idea of transubstantiation. And so what they would argue for, and which is a Protestant view, a, a theological term that's called real presence, which means uh, simply what I've just stated, that, that Christ is present at the table. It's, it's simply stated, Christ is present. So the question is, to, to, the question, to the answer to the question of, is that, isn't that a Catholic view that Jesus is present when we partake in communion? Um, and so we live in San Antonio. Many, many of you are like, you're like, he sounds, he's going off the rails here. What's happening? This is not a merely Catholic view. This is actually a, a Protestant view by the most part. Um, first one, let's look at, let's talk about Martin Luther, the, who led the great Protestant Reformation, who also was definitely not Catholic. Like, like, they tried to kill him. Like he was not. He, he, there he had many issues with the Catholic Church. He had some cool stories where he would like rescue nuns out of the convent and set them free. He was, he was a renegade. It was awesome. He was, but he did not share the Catholic view regarding the, uh, the, the body and blood of Christ. And so he, on the Lord's Supper, he says this. This is how he would, he would put it. He says this. When Jesus says, this is my body, Luther said, it is clear, plain, and unconcealed. But he's simply saying, if Jesus says it's his body, why are we arguing about it? Why we got to explain it? I asked my kids this week, hey, what is communion? What is the Lord's Supper? I asked them multiple times this week. Every time they're like, well, the bread is his body, the cup, wine, or juice is, is his blood. Like, that's all they said. They didn't like sit around and go, how? Like, this is what it says. Jesus said, this is my body. So Luther wasn't so concerned about explaining this mystery. He wasn't like trying to, to explain it. Again, he was re he's revolting and rebelling against the Roman Catholic Church. So he did reject the, the understanding of transubstantiation. However, he 
also didn't condemn anyone and did not think the Catholic Church should elevate transubstantiation to the point of an article of faith like the Catholic Church had done. And so additionally, John Calvin, another uh, reform, Protestant reformer who we see from him, the Presbyterian uh, denomination form, is uh, he also rejects transubstantiation. But Calvin taught that Christ, he, he, he says it this way, uh, he, he taught that Christ wasn't present physically, but spiritually. Uh, he would emphasize the role of the Holy Spirit in, in, in what he would say is Christ's body is located in heaven, but the Holy Spirit can unite things in ways that we may not be able to understand. And so Calvin is in the Institute's reference, in referencing the Lord's Supper, says that he'd rather experience communion than understand it. For those of you who've read John Calvin, you've got to be like, y'all are like, no, he's not, he's a stoic, he's not an experiential guy. Like, he's a charismatic He's like, I want to experience Christ in the Lord's Supper. See, in the world we live in today, we want to experience Christ everywhere else. Let's hear him in the music. Let's hear him in the word. Let's hear him in every other place where, but this is the one. This is the one where the Bible actually says, like, there's, a, there's, there, there's something different about this feast than other feasts. And so he's like, I want to experience it. Bro didn't have music in some of his liturgies sometimes because he was a, in the Reformation, it got a, things got crazy. There was times where he was like, we got it. It's all, we're so serious. And, and many of you, you'll think of John Calvin as just this stoic, you know, serious guy, no emotion. He's like, bro, give me all the communion. We want to experience this. So interesting. The Calvinists who follow him tend to not want to experience anything. So it's just saying, um, he's saying Christ is present. The same way that as we sing, right, we, ex- we sing what makes Christ present. The fact that we've gathered together, two or three are gathered, he is in our midst. Do we believe that? He is actually in our midst. When we sing songs of adoration and praise, do we believe that we are praising the, the God who's seated on the throne but present with us? Or do you think he's just on the throne? He's not here. He's not present with us. Do you reject the Great Commission when he, Jesus says, I will be with you always to the end of the earth? He is present in a powerful particular way when we sing and this is where you see it in many charismatic movements and churches is like when the song is when the presence of god is ushered in when in the table the lutherans will say this is when the presence of god is ushered in what i'm trying to say is that we should not just see and i think this is would have been uh follow the same logic of, of of calvin is that we want to experience jesus through singing we want to experience Jesus through the preaching. We want to experience Jesus at the table. And so, another, uh, this guy, sounds, Thomas Kramer, uh, who was uh, Anglican, uh, said it this way, which is very similar to Calvin. He says, although Christ in his human nature, uh, substantially, really, corporately, naturally, and sensibly is present with the Father in heaven, yet sacramentally and spiritually he is here present. That's how he would articulate this presence of Christ at communion. Do you, do, hopefully we're seeing the difference. Um, and I don't have time to get much into the debate between Protestants and Catholics, uh, but, but there, there's a difference between the mass, the worship, being a, a, a reiteration of the crucifixion of Christ. This is what is being rejected in the transubstantiation, that, that Christ is, is, is the, the, the body and blood are becoming uh, 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 Christ and so that we crucify him in, in a way again. That's what we are rejecting. 
there is one more reformer that has uh, that that said something different. So I don't want to be. Most of the reformers did, in fact, articulate some sort of real presence that I do think is consistent with our First Corinthians ten uh, view that Paul is speaking to. But Ulrich Zwingli had a more of a memorialistic view. And this is where modern contemporary American uh, evangelical churches tend to simply view communion. Probably likely your background is that uh, so there's some sort of, uh, they reject uh, any sort of real presence, that everything is just merely symbolic. Um, but the, 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 I want us to see, though, that the idea of Christ being present in some way, again, we're not explaining how, like in some way, uh, and just how we, how we explain, we don't know how to explain how is Christ present here and in Utah right now and in, you know, Indonesia with all the Christians who are gathered. We don't, none of y'all sit around going, let me explain that. Do you? No, you've never, at this point, you're like, I've never thought to explain that. I'm saying this, the first century church probably didn't think to how to explain this one either. Christ is present. So that's what we're saying. And so I want you, some of you will say, well, this, I, this, this might have stopped with Luther, Calvin, and those early reformers because they were, they were Catholic. And so uh, they, they kind of were, you know, loyal. Uh, but I want you to see it actually continued. Methodists, Congregationalists, and others throughout history also held some sort of view of, even Pentecostals, of some sort of uh, a real presence of Christ being in, in communion to the Lord's Supper. Bottom line, though, who cares what these folks say? I want us to see this. This is just, I want you to see that this is not just merely a Catholic view. But I really don't care what they say as much as what this Bible says. What does the Bible say? G, uh, Paul is saying that there is a real participation. He's saying that. That's the words he's using. So we, we, can't, we can't deny that. We can wrestle to understand that. And we can be okay with some mystery behind that. But additionally, Jesus did say, this is my body. And didn't go, but hey, um, what I really mean is it's only a symbol and go through that. He didn't say that. He just said, this is my body. Additionally, he said, you will eat my flesh and drink my blood. And everyone thought they were cannibals. Like, and he didn't, he didn't go, oh, you know what? Let me explain this so you don't look weird. He, Jesus does not care if you look weird. He does not. He never has. And so he tells his disciples things. Like, let's see who's listening. Hey, you're going to eat my flesh and you're going to drink my blood. And they're like, hey, hey, bro, can you, can you explain to them that we aren't weird. Like, no, man. Like, we're going to keep going. If that, if that weirds you out and you can't follow me because of that, you're not worthy to follow me anyway. Let's go. Like, that's, that's how Jesus taught. And so Jesus says, this is my body. He says, you will eat of my flesh. He says, you'll drink my blood. Paul is addressing the Corinthians here, and he explains that there is a real participation with Christ in this great feast of the Lord's Supper. We don't know how. He doesn't explain how, but there is, in a real way, somehow, this is going on. And he's, we're not reenacting the crucifixion of Jesus, where Jesus is actually being crucified in our presence again. That's not what's going on. He's saying, as we eat and drink, we remember Christ. And he is present with us as we do. All right, now who's invited to partake in this feast? Because this is a great feast. And it is more than symbolism. So who's invited to partake in the Lord's Supper? He says this in verse 21. He says, you cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake in the, the, the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So the first thing I want you to see is that the first thing is you must be a Christian to partake. You got to be a Christian. It doesn't make sense to, to look upon the body of Christ broken for your sins if you don't believe Jesus died for your sins. 
or you reject him as the Savior. You're like, I don't believe in Jesus, I reject him. Well, you should reject, we reject you taking communion. Like, that's the, that's it. So first thing, you must be a Christian. The second thing, Paul is, is talking to the church, but he's also now saying you must be faithful Christians. Faithful Christians. He says you cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. Y'all go down to the demon temple, you're eating demon meat, you're sacrificing the demon gods, and you want to come here and take communion? No. You're divided. This is where the idea of excommunication actually started. It means to cut off or keep from communion. Or the Lord's Supper. Like some of you are like, oh, I got excommunicate, or you know, I've heard of excommunication. It means just people kicking people out of the church. It means kicking them out of the table, keeping them from participating in the thing that you that we that shows that we're united with Christ. Because if you're not united with Christ and you're in fellowship with demons, you can't come to the table. You're a liar. He's gonna talk about later. Some people were dying because they were not taking communion in a worthy manner. Just if it's a symbol, then like, why are you dying? I just want you to see that. Like, this, is, this is something unique. This is something awesome. This is something set apart, something holy. And so, so you may call yourself a Christian, but do you live like one? Do you, do you reject, if you reject Jesus, then obviously you're not a Christian. Uh, but, but there are, in Corinth, they were like people who called themselves Christians, and they were like still dabbling in demonic ideology witchcraft and so there are times which people should be barred or forbidden to take the lord's supper communion and this is this can be because of unrepentant sin like so meaning that the church comes together does matthew 18 what what they've been called to do and someone's called in sin those who are spiritual go to try to restore them they ask them to repent of their sin hey follow jesus point them to jesus those who who willfully repent of their sin um, man, man they're, they're, they're in good fellowship with the Lord and with the church, and so they're welcome to the table. But to the degree that they're unwilling to repent according to the scriptures, not according to theories of man or doctrines of you know, tertiary issues, but sin, unwilling to repent of sin, there's a, there's a great case that it should be made that there should be, they should be forbidden from taking, partaking of the temple, or sorry, partaking in communion or the Lord's Supper. This could be because of unrepentant sin. This also could be because of sinful associations you have. So the Corinthians, it may be sinful association with not just your friends with idolaters, that you're partaking in, in, in a temple sacrifice, or you're going down to the temple of Aphrodite and, 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 and committing sexual sin like they were in Corinth, and you were, or the guy who was sleeping with his, his stepmom in the church. Paul says to kick him out of the church. These are all reasons to bar someone, ban someone, keep someone, forbid someone, to go into the table because they're unrepentant in their sin. Do you have to be perfect to partake in communion? No, but you have to be repentant. You have to be perfect to be a Christian. You have to be a re- repentant to be a Christian. The first words out of Jesus' mouth in preaching, repent. First words out of John the Baptist's mouth, repent. First words out of all the prophets of old, repent. Repentance is the beginning of the Christian life. Additionally, it's the first thing that, that, that Martin Luther says in the Great Reformation is that repentance is the Christian life. It's full of repentance, continual repentance. Not to earn God's love, but because we continue to fall short. We confess our sins in light of God's mercy, remember His mercy, grace in Jesus, and we move forward in faith, continually repenting. 
Additionally, modern context, this happened, and this, I think, is a really cool thing. Uh, good thing. I say cool thing. You're going to interpret that as something different. Here we go. Uh, but Nancy Pelosi was barred from the table uh, by the uh, archbishop in San Francisco because of her views on abortion. This was a right move by the archbishop. This was a great application of the text. She's advocating for the murder of children. You can't partake in the meal and the supper when you partake with demons. That's what's going on. That's what's going on. Like, so I'm not saying if you voted for Nancy or a Democrat, like you can't partake in communion. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is when you become an advocate for what God forbids, the church should step up and advocate for Christ and say you, you cannot partake in this supper, in this meal. Like, you're like, this sounds very exclusive. It is. Like, we don't deny that. It is very exclusive. It's only for the body of Christ. Now, you can come to church. Anyone can come to church. Christian, non-Christian, Buddhist, Hindu, Muslim. Come on, come to church. You, can, you are free to join us here. But you're not free to worship at the Lord's table. You're not. And Paul's going to get into it later. He expects that the Corinthians will have, you know, uh, people, non-Christians coming. That's why when, they were to, when people were speaking in tongues and not translating, he's like, the non-Christians don't know what you're saying. Translate so they can worship Jesus too, so they can get saved. That's it. He, he expects non-Christians to come to church. But he does not expect them to partake in the Lord's Supper. And he doesn't expect Christians to act like non-Christians, live like non-Christians, and just ascend to a faith intellectually and then be welcomed to the table. This is why she, Nancy Pelosi is barred from communion. That's what, that's what happened. It came to a point where someone had to step up and say, hey, this isn't Christian. And the archbishop did. And so you can't be dining at the table of demons and, and at the Lord's table. So what I'm saying is when you, when you advocate for what God forbids, you become an evangelist that's what the word advocate means. You become an evangelist for Satan and demons, and you're not allowed at the table. Some of you are I'm an evangelist for demons. Then repent of that and come to the table. Renounce it once for all and come to the table. But don't come to the table dining with demonic wickedness. And this could be unrepentant sin. If you're like, man, I know I'm sinning. I don't really care. I've heard pastors say it. I've heard the Bible say it. I've heard them teach about it. I don't really care. I am my own self. I'm a free human. That's okay. You might die at communion, like we'll find out later. Like, like that, Paul is just warning them. He says, I'm not going to kill you, but God might. And so there's two types. This is where you get the idea of guarding the table. Have you ever heard the term guarding the table? And so this, there's two types of, of guarding the table. And so some, some traditions have like a linebacker just ready. A guy's coming down the field, you know, in the backfield, and they just take him out. Like that dude's not allowed to take communion. So they come out, boom, knock the guy out of line. Or this guy's just like over the table. Nope, not you. Like there's, there's traditions like that's, that's the case. I think it was one of the reformers that did. Like they, they, they did that, like just wouldn't let certain people take communion because they were unrepentant. That is a type of, of guarding the table. So there's a few types. Uh, but the first type of, of guarding the table is like a tight, um, uh, a, a tight view, a narrow view, um, a uh, like members only, you know, t- type of view. This is what you, what you get with like uh, churches that only allow, um, and I'm not knocking these views. I'm just talking about two different views of, of uh, guarding the table because it is a big deal, right? If someone might die from partaking wrongly, like, it's, it's good that you would want to warn them of that, correct? Right. 
the answer is yes. And so there's, there's one view that would just, they're so strict on it that they only allow members of the church to partake. So if you're not a member in good standing with the church, you can't partake. So that means some churches will just do a communion only in members' meetings or something like that. Something that's only like the member, they can control the environment, high-controlled environment. Um, uh, additionally, so it, it, tight security over the table. Or, or even like the Catholic Church, if you're not Catholic, you can't partake. So none of us can go to, uh, a, you know, you're not supposed to. So, I know some people who try it. You know, it's kind of, you know, never mind. Um, so there's just tight security it's kind of like VIP at a club. Like only we, you got to have your card to come in. Like this is VIP. But then there's uh, another view, which is our view. Uh, I like to think about it is, uh, man, anyone can, we just let you know what's going down and we put it on you. If you don't want to repent of your sin, we trust that just like Paul, is what I think he does here. He doesn't tell the Corinthians. He tells them sternly to guard the table, but he doesn't tell them you know, how stern. He says, you might, you know, God might make you ill and die. Like he's like, he, he trusts that God can take care of it if you're t- partaking wrongly. And so we, I like to think of it as like, we have great bouncers. You know, if we, we find out, you, everyone's invited to the club, you're hanging out, you're, you're having fun, but like you start making disruption, like you're out. We'll get you out quick. This is the same thing when it comes to church discipline. Like, hey, if you want to, uh, once we, if we find out you're advocating for the de- team demons, we're going we're gonna to ask you to not partake. If you're unrepentant in sin, we've, we've, we've called you to repentance, asked you to repent, and you don't want to repent, we will then ask you and forbid you from partaking communion. If it persists, then we might have to like have you know, a, a, a bodyguard up here going, nope, not you. But we never had that. The point is, is there, there's two ways to guard the table. One, to be super tight in security. The other is to just uh, to, to be very clear, open, and honest about what communion is and then the, the consequences for those who partake improperly, which we're going to get to here in a moment, and then let people then uh, in their own conscience, according to their relationship with the Lord Jesus, uh, we do you know, they can partake. So if you're a Christian from another church, another congregation, maybe even a more memorialistic view or a different view, you're welcome to the table under Christian unity, provided that you believe in Jesus, that he died in your place for your sins, he's risen from the dead victoriously for you, and that you are a repentant Christian. You are one who continually walks in repentance with Jesus. We invite you. If, if you lie to us and you come to the table and you partake in it, that's fine. We'll let Jesus deal with you. That's our stance. So we say all this thing that for, for people's good. You don't have to be a perfect Christian to partake in the Lord's Supper. You have to be a repentant Christian, though. You ought to be. Now, chapter 11, verse 17. The Lord's Supper gone wrong in Corinth. It has gone wrong. But in the following instruction, I do not commend you. Y'all are not doing it well. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for worse. Like, y'all made it worse when y'all get together. Like, you think that when you came together as a church, it could somehow get a little bit better, but it got a lot worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. So y'all are already divided. We've talked about that at length in other sermons. I believe in part, uh, for there must be factions among you that in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Like, so some of those who are genuine are telling, they're telling the truth. Y'all are divided. When you come together, it's not for the Lord's Supper you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? What's going on? Do you not have houses to drink in? Like, hey, you got to drive home. You can't. DWIs are real. You shouldn't be doing this. 
Like, don't, why are you getting drunk at church? Why are you getting drunk, period, but in communion? Or do you despise, do you just hate God? Do you despise the church of God? And humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? I shall, shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So what's happening here? It's likely this church is meeting in houses. Um, uh, like uh, we've talked about before, it's 80 or 50 to 80 people probably in this, this young, growing church. And when they've gathered together on the Lord's Day or on Sunday to meet, many people were still in work. The reason being is because it was, the, the, Sunday wasn't a holiday yet. It wasn't like a day off for people. Sunday morning wasn't, was a time where people gathered to worship. But for many people, they still had to work. So unless you were affluent and could take the, the day off and lose out on money, there are many people, a lot of young first-generation Christians who are going, hey, I got to work. Like, I, 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 need, I need to eat. And so it's likely what they would do is have church last a really long time and that some people would just come later. And so you see this in other countries. Uh, when I lived in, in Kenya, I saw in the Maasai people, because they had to walk like a bunch of miles, 10 miles to get to church on Sunday, is like they would do three sermons, like three one-hour sermons, and then do a discipleship class. Like that was like, it was all day. Because people took a while to get there. We ate, we feasted, we had, we had like a snack, and we had like a meal. Like this was this massive thing because of uh, people needed to walk f- far distances. Also, you know, that you're in the bush, and so what ha- happens if like, you know, a lion's been eating your, you know, your, your kid or something? Like you had to like fight it, and like you had to get there. Uh, like it's just, you may be late to church, but they were like, I'll be late to church. We're like, in our day, if I'm late to church, then I won't show up. They're like, I'm late to church, I'll just be late. I'm still going to show up. And they're like, that guy walks in and the sermon's one minute from being finished. And he goes, all right, I'm just going to do a second sermon because that bro just got here. And so Americans don't understand this, but it's likely throughout the world that, that well, it is like that throughout the world. It's likely in, in Corinth they were doing something similar. So those who were more fluent maybe got there early. They brought the wine. They brought the bread. And, and, and it was likely they also perhaps maybe ate a meal. But they couldn't wait. They couldn't wait for everybody. And so old Johnny is getting off work, and he's going to be here at 12.05. And they're like, it's 11 o'clock. We do communion at 11. We're going to partake. Well, Johnny's not here. We're going to drink his juice too, or his wine. Oh, we've had two wines for Johnny. Let's keep going. Oh, oh, oh Paul's not here either. And, and they, just, they just get drunk. And then you have the guys who are just like, I don't like wine. So they're just eating all the bread. It's like my son. My son loves bread. Like he would be just, let's just eat all the bread. And, and that's just what's going on. And so there's no unity here in the church. They're divided and they're getting drunk. So the point being is they don't know what's going on. They don't understand the Lord's Supper. Now, just because the practice was to, to, to have a longer service or have a feast and, and, and to have something more in a home doesn't mean this is per descriptive, or sorry, this is simply descriptive of what their practice, not prescriptive of how the Lord's Supper is supposed to be partaken in. Paul will later say, hey, when I get to you, uh, I'm going I'm to show you some more stuff about communion, uh, like how, how you should do it. And so what I don't want to, some people will read this and go, well, if we're not meeting in the house, having the possibility of getting drunk, then are we really partaking in communion? Like, that's not what he's saying here, is that the, the goal is to have, like, three-hour feast and, like, end with communion. 
He's just describing what's going on here, and he's rebuking them not he's rebuking them not for for um, their their service. But he's he's rebuking them for how they're partaking in the body, how they're partaking in the blood, how they're partaking in the Lord's supper. And he's like, there's not unity here. This thing, this meal is supposed to bring us together. Communion literally implies unity in the body. So they're only thinking selfishly about themselves. They're not considering others. The people who don't have much uh, money, they don't, they don't have a lot, they can't, eat, they, they can't even partake because they can't even bring their own wine to it. There's multiple loaves. There's multiple wine, uh, wine uh, containers. There's just, just no unity, division in this church. Paul's like, y'all have no idea what you're partaking in. You're misunderstanding it. It's not just symbolic. I've already talked about that. And also, y'all are getting drunk. This is wild. And so what's interesting, though, is this, this idea of, of not sharing with everyone or not participating with one another in communion it happened again right before the Reformation. What was happening in, in, in many of the Roman Catholic world was that they were forbidding communion from, not just, uh, from, from non-clergy. So what happened in, in, in the Mass, they would come together, and if you were not a, a clergy, you weren't a, like a pastor on staff or whatever, like you, you would watch the priest give the body and blood to, to the staff, and y'all would watch it, and y'all couldn't partake in it. That was what's going on in, in, in the late uh, uh, medieval or Middle Ages. That this, before the Reformation, communion was being withheld from the congregation. They weren't sharing. This wasn't unity. It was just for clergy. And sometimes that, that, and when they would share, it would just be just the bread. They'd come up and you know, the, the, the members would get the bread and not, not, not the wine. Kind of like the, cor- the Corinthians, like, what are you going to do? Are you going to get drunk on the wine in the back? Like, what, the communion wine? Why aren't you sharing this? This is unity. So much so, and because there was such superstition in this moment, is that some people were taking the bread, putting it in their pocket, not even eat, eating it, because it was so rare. They thought it was so set apart, so holy, they didn't go put it in their garden in order to help bless their crops. The, the reformers were coming into this world seeing that type of wickedness going on at communion, at the Lord's Supper. It's similar to Paul coming into Corinth and seeing the great wickedness that's going on in the disunity in the Lord's Supper. The Reformation was a call back to what Christ intended. That's what they were doing. The, 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 the reformers were rediscovering, reapplying, reinstituting what Jesus instituted, to which they then overthrew this idea that the, that that communion or the Lord's Supper was just for clergy, but it was for the entire body, and everyone needed it, and they needed it each week. And so, this is, this is the Lord's Supper gone wrong, and this is the church of Jesus seeing, should see the Lord's Supper as something to, to cherish, to honor, to enjoy, and to partake in. So what is this that we partake in? I have 10 minutes to explain it, and then we're going to go take it. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 through 34. The body of Christ broken for you. Paul says then to them, he's, gonna, he's now telling them how to partake. For I received from the Lord, and I, will also deliver, and I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In a moment, we're going to partake in communion or the Lord's Supper. And if you're a Christian, you're invited. If you're a non-Christian, we ask that you abstain. 
And when you partake in the bread here in a moment, when we do, you need to remember what Christ has done for you. Like remember in the moment now that Jesus' body was broken for you. That Jesus was literally died, died in your place for your sins. He was crucified, executed, and murdered for your sin, for you. Like his body broken, literally broken for you. So when you partake, you, you're going to the table remembering that Jesus is not just God. He's not just sinless, but he's, a sin, he's the sinless God-man who stood my place for my sin. I deserve to die. He took my place. His body was broken for you. So as you eat, you're eating in fellowship, in communion, in, in celebration, in joy, in participation with God the Holy Spirit. That, that, fin- that work that Jesus finished is your finished work too. That you've been forgiven. Your body broken for you. He has died in your place for your sins. And he has risen. He's not dead anymore. He has risen victorious. When you go to the table, and you'll also take of the cup, which is the blood of Christ shed for you. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So after the bread comes the cup. I want you to see this. We're really particular about this. And Jesus has two different moments of this. He eats and we drink. That's why we don't dip, just so you know. This is why we don't. There's a point. Jesus says to drink. So we drink. We're not going to be weird and all drink out of one glass. So we put one, all the juice into different glasses coming from the same source. But it is, it, is, it is all, you can all have your own cup. And so this cup is the cup of the new covenant in Christ's blood shed for you. That's what he says. And once you see it's the forg- his blood was shed to forgive you of your sins. When you go and you, you drink the cup, you do so remembering that Jesus' blood was shed for you. He, he You do this as a proclamation to your own soul, a testifying to the watching world, a participating with the body and with the presence of Christ that you are forgiven. If some of you today, you're struggling to believe that you are forgiven. When you partake, you you, you would declare to your own self, to your your soul, to your neighbor, to to the community that you are, you affirm the shed blood of Christ his blood shed for you, for the forgiveness of sins. If you don't believe his blood has cleansed you from sin, you don't partake. Why then, you who believe that he has died for your sins, partake in a way that does not build your faith? Why do you partake as if it's merely just symbolic? Why do you drink the cup as if there's no real participation, no actual forgiveness, no actual recalling the finished work of Christ? How how many weeks have you come to the table struggling with your faith, struggling with assurance, struggling to to walk upright in Christ, and you've taken the cup and you've drank it and walked away? No different. Do you see what this is? It's not merely a symbol. It's an opportunity to testify, to proclaim, to remember, to hold on to, to behold, to believe in the finished work of Jesus. If you drink the cup, 
you're proclaiming that it was his blood shed for you. So that the whole thing, the whole meal is a proclamation and an affirmation of the gospel. You are saying, Jesus on the cross died in my place for my sins, therefore he's my savior, and therefore I rejoice. Therefore you should take with joy and gladness and celebration. Christ is present. We're unified. We're together with the body. Joy, celebration, feasting with Jesus and his people. It's awesome. Now, before we do, the text tells us not just it's, it's so important that we should examine ourselves. And so we, we examine ourselves before we partake. Verse 27, he tells the Corinthians this, However, therefore, uh, whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. So he's saying you've got to take this thing seriously. He says, let a person examine himself, then, and so eat of the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill. Just put that there for a moment. I wasn't going to say this, but I just want to say it now. It could be possible that some of the things you're dealing with and struggling with and you're unable to have health and vitality and, and, and freedom from are because you're unrepentant while you're taking communion. You have no reverence for what you're partaking in. You're dealing with chronic issues, health issues, addictions, shortcomings. You're just stuck. Every week you partake in a way. You're weak. You're ill. I'm not saying this is the only reason why people would be sick. What I'm saying is that of what he is saying, this is why some of you are weak. This is why some of you have no power over your sin. This is why some of you are ill. And he says for them, this is why some have died. It's just serious what we're partaking in. We do it with joy, we do it with gladness, we celebrate. It's an awesome thing, but it is serious. But if we judge ourselves, we are truly, if we are judge ourselves truly, we will not be judged. Meaning we examine ourselves, we repent of our sin. The, the, the point of communion isn't to be perfect, it's to be repentant. But we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. This is fighting sin, following Jesus, this is discipleship, but we've, we talk about it at length all the time. So then, brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. We don't have a problem with people coming in after communion, so we're all here. So we do it at the end of service, not at the beginning of service, because y'all aren't all here. We know this. And if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So we don't give you whole loaves, because y'all got homes to eat in. So when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And about other things, I'll give you directions when I come. So Paul will tell them different directions about what to come. But he tells them here, for our edification, what we need to know to partake. And so this great feast is not merely symbolic. The only type, the only other place in the scripture where we see stuff like this, where people are dying in the presence of God, is like in the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament. There's just this moment, these moments when we go to the table that we must see it and, 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 and be in reverence and awe. Jesus is God. His body was broken for you. Yet he is holy, holy, holy. And his blood helps you or is the only thing that will get you into the presence of God and live. 
So there's a reverence, there's an awe, there's, a, there's an understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done when we go to the table. And so today, I want us to examine ourselves before we partake. And so first you examine, am I a Christian? If you're not, we ask that you abstain. Do I love Jesus? If you don't, we ask that you would abstain. Do I believe that Jesus died in my place for my sins? If you don't, we ask that you would abstain. That's all, what it, all those things are different ways of saying you're a Christian. We live in a world today that, you know, you've got to quantify things. Number two, we examine our hearts. Am I, am I in unrepentant sin? Is there anything in my life that, that I'm just, I've been unwilling to take to Jesus to, seek his, to, to, to confess to him my sin? If so, you confess your sin before you partake. That's what it means. If, if your sin is so great that it means that or, or it's so, uh, it has affected someone else, you've sinned against your brother who's about to partake in communion too and they don't know about it, it's your job to go confess to them, seek their forgiveness. So there'll be unity in the body when you co- both come to the table. So you're not coming to the table, walking down the aisle and go, bro, I don't even know what this dude's doing. Or he, he harmed me, he stole from me, he sinned, he sinned and now we're just gonna go to the table together acting like we're just friends. Like, dude, you're unrepentant. If, that's, if you have beef with one another in the congregation, you deal with that. You should deal with that before you showed up here today. Maybe you didn't know about the sermon, but now you know. You deal with it before you go to the table. And you're like, I don't want to. Well, if you get sick this week, you'll know why. I'm just telling you. This isn't a threat. This is just, I'm, I, I, we don't emphasize these things enough. And it, that's a sin on our part as, a church, as church leaders to not emphasize this enough. And so when we go to the table, you, you, we repent of our sin. We confess it to the Lord Jesus, who is what? Faithful and just, forgive us of all our sins, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We're not earning his love. It's already been forgiven. We're acknowledging what we're about to partake in. That's what we're doing. So we confess our sin to God. If you're, and I will say this, if you're unwi- unwilling to repent of your sin, we do ask that you would abstain. If you're like, you know what? I know I'm sinning, but I don't want to deal with it right now. I have unforgiveness uh, in my heart against my brother over there, and I don't want to deal with it right now because I know it's socially awkward and it's going to be weird. Don't, don't take communion today. Like, well, that's, that's, yeah, it's your choice. Your choice. Lastly, I'll put it this way, and this is how you should view every single Sunday. When you hear the word of God preached, you should ask yourself, will I obey the word? Will I obey what I just heard? If the answer is no, don't go to the table. And this is something we might implement in, our, in, in the liturgy of, of each week. If you don't want to obey what Jesus just said, don't go to the table. You're not unified with them. You're breaking unity. If Jesus said it, now I'm not talking about my opinions, I'm not, and I try not to give them. Uh, we're not talking about opinions. We're talking about the word being clear. And, 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 you're, and you're being called to repentance, and you're like, nah, I don't want to do that today. I don't want to do that tomorrow. I don't know when. I'm not ready to repent yet. Then you're not ready for the table. You're not. Now, are we going to stand up here and not let you? Well, I don't know what's going on in your heart. This is why Paul gives these, this instruction and gives these warnings. 
Do I love Jesus? Am I a Christian? Awesome. Am I, am I repentant? Am I walking? Am I continually you know, walking in fellowship with the Lord Jesus and his people? Awesome. Am I willing to obey his word as it's prescribed and as it's preached and as it's read through and instructed through his word? Yes. Amen. Let's go to the table with joy. Let's go to the table with gladness. To the degree that you are wrestling with sin right now, repent. Confess it. Examine yourself. So what we're about to do right now is we're going to examine our hearts. We're going to spend about a minute of awkward silence so that you can deal with your sin before you partake. You'll know that the table is open when those who are holding the elements come up here. At that point, when you are ready, feel free to walk up the aisle, partake of Christ's body broken for you and Christ's blood shed for you. For the forgiveness of sins, as a proclamation of this great gospel that we believe, with great unity in the body, with great hope that Jesus is your king, he's alive, he's present with us, he's ruling and reigning, and he's coming back to rescue, redeem, and to bring his kids to the place that he's prepared for us, the new heavens, the new earth, where we will reign with him forever. So this feast is not just a, a feast where we, we, we enjoy the presence of Christ here. It also foreshadows a feast that is to come, where we will feast in the presence of the Lord Jesus, the wedding supper of the Lamb, and we will enjoy fellowship and communion with our great God and King. So until he returns, may we partake in this feast that he's instituted. I'm going to pray for us, and then in about one minute, Two of our other pastors will come up here and they will serve communion. When you are ready, come partake. Examine yourself before you do. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that there is forgiveness of sin. Forgiveness of sin found in you. Salvation, hope, and redemption in you. May we glory in the fact that we are, our names are written in the book of life. May we care more about that than anything else. May our greatest joy be that we are adopted sons and daughters of the great King of Kings. So now as we partake of the Lord's Supper, may we do so in confidence that we are in you. May we do so in, as, as repentant Christians who have given our sins to you and continually give our sins to you and continue to enjoy and, and worship and, and glory and, and, and thank you for this great gospel, this great salvation, this great forgiveness, this great redemption that we have. And God, may we, as we examine ourselves right now, would you bring to mind areas of our heart that, we need to, that we've concealed from you, that we need to confess to you, receive free cleansing, free forgiveness today. And would you empower us, grant us faith, empower our faith to, to propel us forward this week as we live life with you, Jesus, on your mission. Move now, Holy Spirit, I pray. Amen.